The second of our seafaring episodes follows the adventures, or misadventures, of William Bly. The story, commonly known as the Mutiny on the Bounty, has almost ascended into the realms of myth, or at least Hollywood. What we're talking about is a voyage that was undertaken sort of as a as a result of lobbying um, by some of the West Indian plantation owners on the Royal Society and the Admiralty. And what they were seeking, and this is sort of the unpleasant um, basis of this whole story, what they were seeking was plants that they could feed the West Indian slave population that were cheap. And Joseph Banks, bless him, who we've met before, was highly in favour of this, and he um, persuaded the Admiralty that they should send a vessel, the Bounty, um, to Tahiti to collect breadfruit plants and then to take those plants to the Caribbean and to um, see if they would acclimatise, the assumption was that they would, um, to the um, climate in the Caribbean, and this would be food for slaves. So that was actually the basis of the whole voyage. Welcome to Meet a Rare Book. I'm Mark Gosper. Guiding us along the way and sharing the remarkable stories they contain is librarian and rare book expert Georgia Prince. The commander was William Bly, and he has sort of gone down in history, especially in all the films, as the tyrant of the peace. Um, and Fletcher Christian, who was the mutineer or leader of the mutineers, has tended to be cast as the sort of hero or anti-hero. So Bly was trained by Cook, um, and he had had a sort of as a young man he he was on board the resolution and he was sort of 22 at the time and he'd been trained in navigation and and all the um you know the the the, the sort of carto- cartographic skills that cook was so famous for and he was present at cook's death although he wasn't sort of on the beach at that critical moment he was in the shore party but Bly ended up by being one of the few of on that voyage who did not do well out of the last voyage. Um, and a lot of that's around his criticism of the officers who ended up by surviving that voyage, particularly James King, who wrote the last volume of the official account of Cook's voyage. And so he ends up by being on the outer of all the promotions that occur after Cook's um, you know, the return of the resolution to, and, and he's not favoured by the Admiralty and he works for a while on merchant ships and it's there he meets Fletcher Christian who he sort of takes under his wing um, as as a young man to, to foster and encourage and he trains him in his particular skills of navigation. Um, and consequently, when he is finally given a commission to buy the Navy again, um, he's still only a lieutenant, um, and he's very cross that he's not actually um, promoted to captain to be in charge of the um, of the bounty. It's quite a small ship. It's only got 44 sailors on it. 
Um, it's a lot smaller. That's a lot smaller than the than the um, Endeavour, for instance, and we don't think that that is a very big ship. It wasn't a big deal the Admiralty sending this ship. They were basically doing it as a favour. They certainly weren't um, investing a lot of money or or anything in it. Whereas Bly, for Bly, this was a, this was a, a way of restoring his reputation, of making his name finally, you know. And so Bly <clears throat> produces this um, account. Um, so as he says, at the time I published the narrative of the of the mutiny on board the Bounty, which he does immediately he gets home. Um, it was my intention that the preceding part of the voyage should be contained in a separate account. This method I've since been induced to alter. The reason of the narrative appealing first was for the purpose of communicating early information concerning an event which had attracted the public notice. Um, soon after returning to um, England, um, he did actually publish an account of the mutiny um, very quickly, his side of the story, of course. Um, and he very he's... he's um, well aware that he has to get in um, first, in a sense, um, in terms of the marketing or publicity around this voyage <laughs> and defend himself before anybody can start casting aspersions. And it's called, and I'll open the title page and you get to see a picture of Bly here on the, as a um, quite a mild-looking man, despite his appalling temper, which is really the cause of most of his troubles. Um here we go. That's that's Captain Bly. Um, and here we're looking at a title page that says, A Voyage to the South Sea, undertaken by command of His Majesty, for the... I'm going to read it, turn around now. For the purpose of conveying the breadfruit tree to the West Indies. In His Majesty's ship, The Bounty, commanded by Lieutenant William Bly, including an account of the mutiny on board the said ship, um, this is written by Bly, remember, um, and the subsequent voyage of part of the crew in the ship's boat from Tofua, one of the friendly islands, to Timor, a Dutch settlement in the East Indies, the whole illustrated with charts, etc., published by permission of the Lord's Commissioner of the Admiralty, um, and this is 1792. Um, so this includes the whole story of the voyage itself, um, as well as the mutiny. Um, because a mutiny and the loss of a ship involves the captain of that ship being court-martialed. So it doesn't matter whether they, they are innocent, you know, like if they just, you know, if the ship, any any loss of a ship, be it a mutiny or a shipwreck or anything, the captain is automatically court-martialed. Um, and it's a way of, you know, um, providing accountability, if you like, to the Admiralty about how they, you've lost their property. Um, here we have his image um, of the, the bounty um, as she was fitted out for containing all the breadfruit, the, the seedlings of the breadfruit plants. So it was like a um, floating nursery. So the, you know, the grand cabin, the big cabin where the captain and his officers would normally congregate and it's their, it's their sort of private space and it's also their space where they're, um, in a sense, authority is um, bolstered because nobody can go into that space except if you're a, a commissioned officer. It, it's it's been taken over by by plants, so there is no great cabin. And Bly and his master, so here's captain, the captain's cabin, and here's the master's cabin. This is John Fryer, who was the master of the ship. They're stuffed in these little cabins on either side of of the walkway, and then there's this 
there's this sort of bulkhead between them and the rest of the crew. So they're not separated off in any way that, um, you know, sort of bolsters their authority, and it's full of all these plants. This is Banks again, um, taking control <laughs> taking control of a ship. He's the one who drew up all the um, alterations that needed to happen in the bounty in order to fit all these plants in. Um, so... They've got a small crew. There's only like there's only 44 of the crew, um, as I said before, um, and they are slow um, leaving Britain, which means that they can't go round Cape Horn as they're supposed to do. So they spend you know x number of weeks sort of in the face of gales that prevent them actually rounding the Cape. So then they have to turn round and go the other way um, back past the Cape of Good Hope. Um, and so they get to Tahiti at the wrong time of year for the plants, which means they have to stay in Tahiti far longer than any other exploring expedition had so far done, which meant that the sailors had very little to do um, except integrate themselves or amuse themselves um, with the Tahitian population, and they became very used to the freedom of living in Tahiti. Um, in fact, while they were at Tahiti, um, three of the sailors tried to desert, and there's a major, um, you know, sort of uproar about this because desertion is like the most um, appalling um, action um, for a, um, a sailor on a naval ship, um, and they are caught eventually and severely punished, by which I mean they were flogged and then they were put in... Um, prison, you know, in, in confinement for X number of days. Having said that, Bly, although his reputation is one of extreme violence, was not actually as violent as most other um, naval captains. He, he did not actually flog his sailors as much as Cook or as much as Vancouver or as much as um, many other people in the same sort of area. Um, but what he did, and this was his, in a sense, fatal flaw, was he insulted them. He he railed at them. He, and it's his abusive language <laughs> that, in a sense, well, this is this is what people think now. Obviously, everybody's guessing as to why the mutiny occurred. Um, but it's his abusive language, which people, generally speaking, um, feel is the cause of the fact that he fell out with his crew, because he would insult them and be really horrible to them. But then he would it would all blow over and he'd be all pals again, and they sort of didn't know where they stood. Um, in the um, This is his account of the mutiny itself. So they're in Tahiti for five months and they leave. Um, and it's naval discipline, you know, on board now. We're heading back to the Caribbean with all our plants. Um, but the um, the problems occur with, with Fletcher Christian, who... Bly had promoted to being acting lieutenant, so he was his second in command. He'd, he'd come on as the master's mate, but he was promoted, so he'd been favoured by Bly. Um, but Bly was extremely rude about any what he viewed as incompetence. He saw his sailors as largely speaking incompetent and not up to it, and so he was constantly um, <coughs> criticising them in a, in a sort of rude manner. He wasn't obscene and he wasn't particularly violent, but he was insulting <laughs> and he did this for quite some time. And so the end result was um, Fletcher probably was persuaded by some of his other... He was obviously struggling, mentally struggling with this. Um, 
and he was probably persuaded by some of the other rather more violent members of the crew who who also wanted to get rid of Bly. Um, they were he was on watch and Bly was woken up early one morning um, and and was basically um, handcuffed and you know um, dragged up to the to the top of the to the boat um, and um, they set him adrift um, in a boat an open boat in the sea in the ocean <laughs> um, basically to fend for himself um, there were a number of loyalists on board who also went into the boat it was seven meters long um, and it was open it had two masts um, and Christian did Mr Fletcher Christian did um, give them a sextant and a bit of food like five days food or something um, no charts um, somebody had a watch uh, you know so they had oh, a couple of and some cutlasses so they did have some way of defending themselves should they go on shore. Um, 18 people got into this boat and it meant that their freeboard was about seven inches. What's that like about that much? They're in the middle of the open sea. <laughs> you know, it's, it's quite a story. Um, other people wanted to be on the boat, but they couldn't, they weren't allowed on because, um, cause they were all, you know, some of them were frightened, obviously, because the result of a mutiny is basically, you know, that's, you'd be hanged if you were caught, you know, it was that bad. So um, some of them wanted to be on the boat and they weren't allowed on because all they, their companions kept saying, don't come on, we haven't got comfort anymore, I'll, I'll, you know, comfort anyone on this boat, um, we'll sink, you know. And there were others who um, Christian and his mates decided that they wanted to keep who had skills they wanted, like the armourer. So they kept him and the car, uh, no, not the carpenter, the armourer they kept and a couple of other people who they wanted their skills. Um, so there's a bit of jostling, but in the end there's eight, there's 18 people plus Bly on the boat and there's 25 left on the bounty. And that divide becomes the divide of the mutiny, regardless of motivation um, of who was on which boat, why, whether you just couldn't get on it, whether you were, you know, whether you wanted to be on, but you were dragged off, all of those. When the um, trial occurs, which it does occur, believe it or not, it's hard to believe, but it does. When that trial occurs, that's the dividing line. Um, so Bly very quickly blames Tahiti. It's not my fault. It's because they had such a lovely time on Tahiti and they all want to go back. Um, the women at Tahiti are handsome, mild and cheerful in their manners, as supply, um, and conversation, possessed of great sensibility and have sufficient delicacy to make them admired and beloved. The chiefs were so much attached to our people that they rather encouraged their stay among them than otherwise and even made them promises of large possessions. You are talking about, you know, for most of these sailors, people who are poor with no resources whatsoever. I mean, Christian... Fletcher Christian actually comes from a real, not a wealthy family, but a well-to-do family. So, you know, and there are a few of them in that category who do come from, you know, families with connections, but most of them don't. Most of them are your average sailor. Um, so this is, this is Bly's um, defence of himself, if you like. And here's the picture of the launch, which is carefully described here. So here we go, length 
23 foot, breadth 6 foot 9, depth 2 foot 9, steep sided, you know, it's got two masts, so it is a sailing um, launch, but isn't big for 18 people. <laughs> And I mean, and and a lot of the interest in the story now occurs from the fact that what happens is Bly manages to navigate this open boat um, through appalling weather because actually they get rained on for sort of like most of May. This is April, um, seventeen eighty nine, and they're in this boat for forty seven days. They land one place to try and get food, but they get chased off, and somebody dies at the base on the back of that one. Um, so they decide they're not going to land. They do eventually get to a little island off Great Barrier Reef and they get some oysters, you know, they get a few seabirds. But basically they're living on next to nothing. And they uh, there's a chart here. So where's the chart? Here we go. Oh, well, Bly, even while he's on the boat, he's doing charts. <laughs> I mean, here's a chart he does, um, the northeast coast of New Holland. In other words, this is, you know, when they get to um, when they get to Australia, he actually does a chart of the coast, even though, you know, he must be living on nothing, no food, um, because he certainly was taking the same, um, the same, you know, rations as everybody else. This is, this is the, the boat voyage, and it's... I have to, I've had to write this down. What is it? Three thousand six hundred miles. It's over. It's they usually say it's over about six thousand kilometres, um, and that's the that's the voyage on the open boat. <laughs> so it's a huge, huge. Um, you know, they have sea breaking over them all the time. They're completely wet for a lot of the time. They've got no shelter, no food. But apart from the one who gets killed off the island um, in Tonga, they actually do survive, all of them, in that boat um, till they get to Timor. Four do die when they get to Indonesia um, because they're so weakened and they can't um, cope with the um, diseases that, you know, that, that were common. Um, and so they do get there. Um, <laughs> On board, Bly even writes a notebook. He take he keeps going. He's got a log. This is not the original. This is a facsimile. So the original is in the National Library in Australia, and they bought that in nineteen in the nineteen seventies from a descendant of Bly. Bly had four daughters, um, and they yeah, and a descendant of Bly. So this is this is the notebook that he that he kept when he was on the open boat. So he carried on doing all the things that he would normally do, um, you know, this, this is his handwriting, you know, this is a copy, this is the copy of the book. Um, it was a book that one of his midshipmen had um, for um, writing down sort of um, signals and things, so, and most of it was empty, so this is, these are his, some of his calculations to try and find their way there with the sextant, um, which he did do. Um, the course, the wind direction, yeah, so that, that and actually in here there's some what you can see, uh, and I know this is just a facsimile, but at times you can see what the water, you know, the effect of the water on the boat. See up here, this is water damage, which is obviously in the original. You know, I mean, it's just a horrible sort of story. Um, but Bly was 
sustained by his sense of the injustice of the whole thing and how these people had treated him so badly, especially Fletcher, who he thought he looked after and, you know, treated as a son and look what he did to me. And so almost immediately that he was on the boat, he wrote this list of um, the description of the mutineers, every single one of them, this is all from memory, every single one of them he writes a list, and, and this is in the notebook, but obviously this is the facsimile of the list. Um, which is quite a famous list. His description of Fletcher Christian in particular is quite famous. Um, so he's written all these out. He's on, bo- on the boat, remember, on the open boat. And he's sat down and he's written out everybody's name and how old they are and what their description what their description is. And this is for the Admiralty. So the Admiralty can come out and catch these, you know, terrible people and bring them to justice. Fletcher Christian, aged 24 years, 5 foot 9 inches high, dark, swarthy complexion. Complexion dark and very swarthy. Hair blackish and be- or very dark brown. Make strong. So this is his marks. Star tattooed on the left breast and, um, and tattooed on the backside. That's what he's got. Apparently the star was... This, a, a number of the sailors did this in um, Tahiti. It's it's actually the the order of the Garter. It's <laughs> that they've that they've tattooed on themselves, <laughs> which is quite an interesting comment in many ways. Um, stands a little out and may be called a little bow legged. He is subject to violent perspiration and particularly in his hands, so that he soils anything he handles. This is the classic description of this is Bligh. And then he goes on, you know, to other people. Peter Hayward, age seventeen. Um, so you know these people are not old. <laughs> Many of them are not. Edward Young, age twenty-two. So he's one of the ones who ends up in Pitcairn. Hayward is one of the ones who's captured on Tahiti. Um, and subsequently get, gets off. So when Bly gets back, um, which he does very quickly and he's already writing his account and his justification of what happened, um, the Admiralty, um, even though they weren't very keen on the whole idea of this um, expedition anyway, send a frigate immediately. It's three times as big as the bounty, this frigate. It's got 130 people on it. Um, and they go out under Captain Edwards and they go out to... Um, track down the mutineers and um, take them prisoner. That's that's their job. And this is the voyage of the Pandora. So this this is the boat, the Pandora, that goes off from Britain. Um, and this little book was a book we bought at auction um, in 2017, um, which is the only official, which is the only, and this is bought in, you know, at Art and Object, it's the only um, account of this voyage Um published account. I mean, there are logs and diaries of different people, but and this is called A Voyage Around the World and His Majesty's Frigate Pandora, performed under the, the direction of Captain Edwards in the years 1790, 1791 and 1792. With the discoveries made in the South Sea and the many distresses experienced by the crew from shipwreck and famine in a voyage of 1,100 miles and open boats between Endeavour Straits and the island of Timor. So they too come a cropper um, for different reasons um, in the Pacific. Um, and one unfortunate man um, who had been on Captain Bly's open boat voyage is a survivor of the shipwreck and has to do 
this voyage as well. <laughs> Which I think would be like the last word. Um, he's not a prisoner, but um, he's come out as the witness to, in order to identify the different people um, on that you know that that were mutineers and that the um, the, the uh, um, you know the ship's comp- complement the. Um, the, the soldiers, in fact, um, would have, the Marines would have been, um, you know, employed to um, track down and arrest. Um, so this is the voyage of the Pandora. Um, what had happened with um, the bounty mutineers was that they had um, returned to Tahiti briefly um, and then they had tried to set up a little settlement um, on an island, I think in the Tongan archipelago, um, which they knew about, um, it hadn't been very successful. Um, and so a number of the mutineers wanted to go back to Tahiti. Chris, Fletcher Christian knew that he would be caught. I mean, you know, like he, there was no way he was going back to Tahiti because he knew that he would be in the firing line and that the Admiralty would come and catch them. Um, so he agreed that he would take um, the dissenters, if you like, um, back to Tahiti, and those ones were ones who were not really mutineer supporters as such. They'd been sort of neutral, you know. They hadn't really been part of the call group. Um, they, so they went back to Tahiti, and um, <clears throat> and then um, Fletcher Christian and his nine sort of core mutineers headed off and eventually um, came to Pitcairn. They didn't know about Pitcairn. I mean, they had all Bly's library, so they were on the bounty. They had all his library and his charts. They knew about it, um, but it was wrongly um, logged. You know, its position was not correct on the charts, and so they spent a long time looking for it, but they did find it um, and managed to stay there um, out of Site and out of the Pandora's retribution um, until they were discovered by a sealing outfit. Oh, were they sealing? Yeah, I think they were American sealing ship in 1808. So, um, so you know, there's a story about that as well because it didn't it wasn't great on Pitcairn, as we know. Fletcher Christian was murdered fairly quickly um, after a couple of years. You know, they they all fought against each other. They had taken Tahitian men and women virtually as slaves. They treated them appallingly. They rose up against them. You know, not, if this is the story of freedom, it's not It's not freedom for everybody and it certainly wasn't freedom for them. Um, and so by the time this um, sealing ship sort of turns up, there's only one of them still alive um, and the others, as I say, had either been murdered or sort of virtually killed each other. Um, so it's a nasty story, actually. <laughs> um, but this is not a lot better. <laughs> they, the mutineers... Um, were um, the ones who were on Tahiti. Some of them, when the Pandora arrived, some of them gave themselves up immediately, sort of being fairly aware of what the consequences were if they ha- if they hadn't, um, you know, wanting to to make sure that they were they had a chance at least of self defence or defending themselves in, in a court. Um, they were confined in a prison that was built on the deck of the Pandora, and it's referred to as the Pan- Pandora's box. It's an extremely small space, like, I can't, you know, they had 14 men in there. It's on the deck of a ship in the tropics. Um, They are confined, they've got irons, so they've got their their, um, hands and feet are um, confined. 
um, they aren't allowed out um, and the Pandora spends about five months trawling the Pacific trying to find the other mutineers. Um, when they get, <laughs> it's a terrible story, when they get to the coast of, of um, Australia um, and the shipwreck occurs, the there is some attempt to release the prisoners um, in Pandora's box, but while they were, they're trying to save the ship, they're not paying a huge amount of attention to the prisoners. When they realise that the ship is going to go, they make a last-ditch attempt to try and get the prisoners out, and one of them throws the keys into the, opens the top of the prison sort of hatch um, and throws the keys in to the prisoners. But four of them still drown. So 10 of them get out of that box, <laughs> but 30 of the Pandora's crew drown. So there's, And then they've got boats that they then attempt, well, they do basically survive, but these prisoners are in, are in the bottom of these open boats in irons, um, lying on the, on the deck of a boat, um, completely exposed to the sun. They talk about, you know, how hot it is actually at this time of year. So they don't suffer from what Bly and his crew suffered from, which was complete being, being soaked and cold. They suffer from heat, um, you know, and sunburn and um, all the awful things. Um, they get to um, so Pandora's box, yeah. Prison was built for their accommodation on the quarter deck that might be secure. Um, so what else have I got here? So they've got their boats um, and then they get, they do get back to... Um, to Timor, but um, this? Yeah. we now neglected weighing our slender allowance of bread, our mouths becoming so parched that few attempted to eat, and what was not claimed was thrown into the general stock. We found old people suffer much more than those that were young. A particular instance of that we observed in one young boy, a midshipman, who sold his allowance of water two days for one allowance of bread. As their sufferings continued, they became very cross and savage in their temper. Surprise, surprise. Um, in the captain's boat, one of the prisoners took to praying, and they gathered around him with much attention and seeming devotion, but the captain, suspecting the purity of his doctrines and unwilling to sh he should make a monopoly of the business, gave prayers himself. <laughs> it's his competition for prayers. Um, yeah, so... They, they eventually get there. Um, so this is the story of the Pandora. That wreck, the Pandora's wreck, um, the Pandora is one of the best preserved wrecks off the coast of, um, of Australia. Um, there's a whole site about the Pandora wreck site and it's, cons it's, a, it's a sort of archaeological um, site. The, uh, um, it's the University of Queensland, I think, are the ones who, who run, the, run the site and it's a major sort of production. Um, so the mutineers get back, 10 of them get back. They all get charged with mutiny. Um, four of them get off. These were the ones who, you know, were, um, in a sense, there were witnesses that saw that Christian sort of forced them back from the boat so they could say, you know, it wasn't our choice, we were forced. Um, four of them get off, so that leaves six Um Two of them get a special pardon, and these are the two with friends, in inverted commas. So one of these is Peter Hayward, who was the midshipman of 17, who I mentioned before, who 
basically his fault was that he didn't say one thing or the other. He was neutral. Um, but he's got friends and his great uncle is a captain in the Navy and they organise his defence really carefully. And so he does get off and he actually becomes <laughs> quite a famous captain in the Navy. So he his career is not tainted by being um, acquitted of the bounty mutiny. Um, one of the others, James Morrison, also gets off. Um, and the story is that quite possibly it's because he wrote a diary very soon after the... He didn't while he was in the boat, um, um, you know, but because he was one of the Pandoras. Um, but he did once he got on a ship um, when he could get pen. And he and his diary was used as, de as defence by some of the others. And so this is where Bly's reputation starts to take a dive because initially everyone was so impressed by the courage of the... Uh, open boat voyage that they thought it was fantastic, you know. Um, but then when the stories come out of the fact that, you know, people start to question it. So why didn't anybody defend him? You know, like there was only nine mutineers. Why didn't the others, they, there were more of ones in the boat. There were 18 in the boat. You know, why didn't they fight back and take the ship back? You know, what was the problem? You know, so all these sort of stories started to come out and also Bly's temper, you know, became known. Um, and so um, so in the end, only three, one got off on a technicality quite cleverly with a, who had a lawyer, who knows how, because the others didn't. Um, so three of them are hanged. And really they were the poorest, the, you know, the least, um, the ones without much in the way of, of friends um, to argue their case. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of stories, of course, of Pitcairn um, and what happened to the mutineers on Pitcairn um, and <clears throat> other stories of Bly's later career, which is not spotless, as you'd imagine. He does get court-martialed again for abusive language in 1805. Um, and, of course, he's a governor of, of New South Wales. Um, and there is a – the so-called Rum Rebellion occurs when he's the governor of New South Wales and he is um, – there's a mutiny there as well. So for all his skills at sailing and his navigational skills, he wasn't very good with people. That's what we can basically sum it up with. <laughs> Not very smart in his relationships with people. <clears throat> so it's him. Uncover a truly unique collection visit Kura Heritage Collections online. Find them under Heritage on Auckland Library's website. This podcast was brought to you by Ngā Pātaka Kōrero, Auckland Libraries. Please join us again soon.